I'm Adam Robert Lewis and you're listening to Brewing Actors Podcast. My chance to talk to actors to hear their stories, what inspired their performances and what decisions or relationships influenced their work. On today's episode... Because I actually think I've been very lucky with Shakespeare. I've done productions which I've not been comfortable in or unhappy, unhappy in. But also I don't think necessarily they were very good productions either. Um, but actually the Shakespeare's, for the most part, have been extremely enjoyable and well done. I've been lucky there. Um, and I don't suppose if you're miserable in a Shakespeare play, it feels any different from being miserable in another play. And there is... There is nothing worse. I mean, there's nothing worse. There's a line in The Seagull, which every actor knows when Nina comes up at the end, she says, you don't know what it's like when you know you're acting badly. My guest today is actor Sir Simon Russell Beale. Simon has been hailed the greatest stage actor of his generation and is one of Britain's leading Shakespearean actors. Simon began his career at the Royal Shakespeare Company and has worked his way through many of the major roles in Shakespeare's canon. Simon has had a long and successful working partnership with director Sam Mendes. Across 20 years and 8 productions, their collaboration delivers exceptional productions on stage. Most recently, Simon appeared in the Lehman Trilogy, directed by Sam Mendes, a production that was due to open on Broadway before the closure of theatres due to the global pandemic. We discuss Simon's incredible career, what introduced him to acting and how his roles have defined his life. So, like any story, we have to start at the very beginning. It's a predictable answer in the sense that it was a great teacher. I suppose most actors probably have that behind them. I, I didn't come, actually, I will talk about my parents uh, because they were amazingly supportive about the whole idea of me becoming an actor, but they weren't themselves. They were, Dad was a musician, although he was a, an army doctor. But right. His great love was music. And I was brought up with music from a very young age. And as you know, I did various sort of semi-professional things as a musician. Mum... Wasn't a musician, but she, and, and I'm not sure that she was particularly interested in, in in literature. Although I found out later that in fact she used to listen to Shakespeare on records. You know, Olivier did. Right. It wasn't part of my upbringing, acting on stage or Shakespeare. But I went to when I went to my senior school. I, I remember the first time I read a Shakespeare passage in class, and that was when I was must be about ten or eleven, and I got terribly excited partly because I was sort of showing off, I think, but I was doing a bit of Julius Caesar. And, uh, but it was the, when I went to senior school and I came from a choir school, so I was a singer. Right. And the, this teacher called Brian Worthington, uh, a great, very puritanical, brilliant English teacher, um, decides to do a production of Othello. And it was an all-boys school, so he asked me to do Desdemona. Of course, Desdemona sings. So right. I suspect it was partly because he knew I could do the song. Um, and uh, that was it. I mean, I, I became completely addicted to it. And it was, you know, like my parents, I was going to be a doctor, so I did science A-levels, but I did English as well. Right. And English was the, my great love, and I was terrible at the sciences, terrible. Um, but the idea of pursuing English in any sort of serious way didn't occur to me. But this teacher just gave me all the confidence and all the self-belief that a great teacher can. And, of course, he directed me throughout my school career. And he was very funny, Brian, because he, I don't think, had much respect for professional theatre. Why is that? <laughs> I've read that in interviews you've given. And um, uh, why do you think that is? I don't know. I, he, he was... He was um, as I say, very strict and, and um, highly intellectual and, and I would say a Puritan. And I think he was always disappointed by what he saw on stage. Right. He himself was a great amateur actor. And uh, the moment when I suddenly thought about acting was after my O-levels, as they were called then, uh, and when my parents went around all the teachers to ask advice about what I should do for A-level. And Brian stood on, I remember where he was standing, he stood on the steps of his flat 
uh, after we were leaving. And he said to my parents, I wonder whether Simon should think about the theatre. And it became such a surprise because, you know, he, because he was so uh, unimpressed by mm. what he saw most of the time. Um, I, hope, I hope that's not unfair to him. I mean, perhaps in his, you know, in his real life, he went to the, you know, loved theatre, but he gave the, us the impression it was never quite up to, especially with Shakespeare, up to scratch. But he was the first person to put the idea into my head and to my parents' head. Um, was there no... Uh, obviously, after that, you went to Cambridge to read English. Yeah. Did you not think about going to drama school? No, it never occurred to me. And... Um, uh, the English, of course, as I was implying, was a surprise anyway, because right. you know, I was in bed, supposed to be doing medicine. And it was only after A-levels that, you know, it was patently obvious that the, the one skill I might have had was English. And uh, so that I should read English. And again, my parents were completely supportive. It never occurred to me to do drama school. And it didn't even after I got my degree, actually. Um, and I was surrounded at Cambridge by the most extraordinary talents, you know, the Stephen Fry's and Hugh Laurie's, Emma Thompson, Tilda Swinton. The first three I didn't really know, but Tilda I knew well and we acted together. So that was part of the part of the hinterland of my life there. My main life there was music again, right. because I went as what's called a choral scholar. So I had to sing every day uh, in chapel. Uh, and I used to therefore be part of the musical world as well. So I was basically a musician as well as uh, reading English, but I wasn't, I didn't regard myself as heading for acting at all. Were you heading more towards being a professional singer as a, as your chosen career path, do you think? Well, rather lazily at the end of my degree, <clears throat> I had absolutely no idea what to do. Uh, I thought of continuing academic work and I applied for a place at London University. All the choral scholar friends of mine, and again, uh, as it happens, a, a couple of really great internationally renowned singers from that year um, Simon Keeney's side and Chris Purvis, um, Mark Pappel, they were all my contemporary s singing colleagues, and they all went on to do a London college course. And so I, I think I was just a sheep. I, mean, I think I just followed, followed what everybody else was doing. So that's what choral scholars did. You went on to a London Music College and tried to train. And in those days, you could get two grants. So right. um, <clears throat> that was the... That was the obvious possibility, so that's why I went to the Guildhall. But I, you know, I, I applied for merchant banking at one point. I mean, can you imagine? Um, I got turned down at the first hurdle, but I, but I had no idea what I was going to do. And certainly, acting—it was only when I got to the Guildhall when it suddenly occurred to me that that's what I should do. Were you a tenor or um, or a high baritone? I was a tenor, <clears throat> not a very high tenor, and it was that was part of the problem. I think. I wonder whether I was in the right voice, actually, to be honest. Um, but I was, I was a, what I suppose you call a second tenor in choral terms. I mean, I would, I had problems with, with top Gs and top As, which is not very good. And I had a wonderful teacher called Rudolf Peerny. He was very famous in the singing teaching world. And he had doubts about that. <laughs> well, he had doubts about whether I was a tenor and he had doubts about whether I should be pursuing singing at all, I think. Um, and he was very supportive when I switched to it. So you got to Guildhall and you were studying singing. Did you instigate the change to the acting course or did they suggest it to you? No. Uh, <clears throat> Luckily, of course, the Guildhall has a drama department. So on the opposite side of the building, you know, the singers were at one end. Uh, the other end were the actors and in the middle were the instrumentalists. I was, remember that. So I used to look at the other end of the the school and think, oh gosh, that's where all the actors are. And I had a friend who was doing a course there as well. And um, it was my idea. I wrote to them and I don't, and I don't, fun enough, I was listening to Helen McCrory on Desert Island Discs a couple of weeks ago and she did something similar. At that age, I don't think you think about whether it's a, the proper thing to do. I wrote to them and said, look, I'm on the singing course, but actually I think I should be an actor. <laughs> Would right. you be willing to consider me? And of course, I don't think that's done at all, really. I don't. I think that's not. Um, so they accepted my letter and saw me, and then took me on. I remember I did Richard the Third and a version that we'd done at Cambridge of the Conrad novel. And I, I think Tony Church was the great Tony Church, Horace the actor, was co-principal. And he said years later, he said, 
one of them was very good. The other was absolutely terrible. <laughs> and I never found out which one was which. Uh, but we decided that on balance, we should let you come in. Yeah. Right. Did you finish the course? No. Or did you, you, you left? It was, it was a year of, I'm not proud of that year. I, right. I was, I think I was in a bit of a mess, really. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, the, the one positive is that I phoned my father and said, I think I, I want to be an actor. He said, oh, thank God for that. I remember him saying that. <laughs> he said, because we knew that's where it was all going to end. I think my um, parents were exactly the same. I think they were... After you gave up the graphic design. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I'd always wanted to go into acting or performing, but I sort of put it off for such a long time. But then when I did decide to do it, I think they were relieved, unless unless I read the signals wrong. But um, but I was steeped in it, you know, my grandfather was musical director of the local male voice choir, yeah, so yeah. singing and performing was part of my childhood, really, and um, and I grew up with it. So I think even he was slightly pleased that I decided to go into it. Well, I think my, fa- I think my father would have been delighted if I'd pursued the singing because that's and in fact my little brother did he he became an opera singer so uh and that's something he knows and loves but they were very they were incredibly open to whatever their children wanted to do and i and i've always been immensely grateful for the fact they had they just went yes of course and um the the problem was is that I, I had a very protected life i think and i i uh you know, I was at a private school and I, uh, a very, you know, privileged university. And then I was suddenly in London and with no money, you know, um, and it was, it was hard going, I think. So I had to sort all that out in my head. I obviously was instinctively thinking, subliminally thinking I'm in the wrong training here. Um, so it was a bit of a mess. So I left, and I, so I left Guildhall early. I think, oh, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, you know, maybe I was I was a bit older, perhaps, than the other students. You know, I'd already done a degree. It's funny now when I talk to young actors. I mean, there, there are two things I've learned when I've been talking to young actors when they ask for advice. First is don't try and put them off. Don't, don't say. I think you should do something else or get another qualification. There's no point because once it's in your in your mind, it's, it sticks, doesn't it? This job. Um, and the second thing is that you've got time. You know, you get you know twenty year olds saying, "I you know, we'll be get you know, get on with it," and you think, honestly, honestly, you don't think this, but you've got years. Uh, I think I was just, I was in a hurry. I think that was the. I definitely think now, at least from my perspective as a relatively new actor starting out in the profession, there seems to be a need to plan your career, um, and it seems more calculated and businesslike, and and profiles and everything. And I've spoken to actors who graduated when the rep theatres were around and they went to rep, you know, they they continued their training and played a variety of different roles. And um, and that's not available in the same way now. I think you're absolutely right. And I've been aware of it for the last sort of 10 years. I never had a plan. And, um, but the world is much tougher now, I think. I've already mentioned the fact that I had two grants, you know, I mean, that's so I could waste, not waste, waste in inverted commas, six years of my life training for something that wasn't going to necessarily um, feed and house me. But I, I never had a plan. Uh, I didn't even think I'd particularly specialise in Shakespeare, actually, although that was a great love of mine at the time and, and has been ever since. But I, I didn't necessarily think I was going to specialise mm. in that. Um, but I do, I am, I am aware now very aware, and this has been going on for, as I said, a decade, that people, yeah, have roots which they pursue. And I, perhaps it's because the other media are more, <clears throat> more open and more exciting. I mean, you know, I, you never thought, or I didn't ever think of being a film actor, for instance. That was, whereas now you have to juggle that as let's do a big film and get a profile. And it never occurred to us, I don't think. Yeah. Um, 
I don't think I had a plan when I left drama school, although I, I had an idea of what productions I'd like to do. But uh, when I, when somebody asks me, I usually say, well, I usually say I'd like to play roles which I really can't. Do you, do you sit there sometimes, if you're given an offer, do you sometimes think, oh, that'll be better for me in a careeristic way? I mean, that'll do me more good. Um than this other offer that I have. Or, uh, well, or... I've never really been in, in that position, so, <laughs> so I'll have to get back to you and let you know. But um, no, I tend to want to play all the roles that I'm far too young to play. Um, and I think that's probably one issue. You know, I'd love to play Titus. I'd love to play Tom in Skylight. But I, I never really thought of, you know, movies and televisions in, in that kind of way when I left. How, how, how old are 29. you? 29. Oh, you could do you could you could do Titus now. Do you think? Yeah, I, I would like to play Titus. I think, but I think when I left drama school, I shut off a lot of avenues of what I thought I could do or or you know film and television because I I don't think I was particularly confident in the way I looked and I had facial scars which sort of plagued that decision for a little while but I'm I'm coming round to the idea now a little bit more and not shutting myself off to any opportunities you know something your facials I cannot see a single thing that's called good lighting Simon <laughs> no um, no I, I think it you know it's mainly in my head but it is something I've got you know better at dealing with I think as time has gone on but do you think do you think there are points in your life also mm-hmm. when options open up to you. I mean, I, I never, ever thought I'd do Hamlet. Why didn't you think you'd get cast as Hamlet? Because well, I'm overweight and I'm not particularly good looking. And um, although, fun enough, I see pictures of myself when I was 20, I was rather lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? It's funny that. I, I didn't know. Mm. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't a leading man in that sense. So Because um, it's funny because I, when I was doing some research and I've, you know, watched a lot of interviews that you've given and I think your your first ever major interview that you gave for the television uh, for the, the for the telegraph I think um, was that you did reference the fact that you hated your body this could be I don't know how you were feeling on the day you hated your voice so much and on stage you were saying love me despite the fact I'm ugly can I, can I give it a he's been quoted a lot I mean I think it was the yes the independent uh, and it was Paul Taylor, who's a very, very great critic. i just finished the season of the RSC right. up in Newcastle. And we'd had a last night where I drank so much. <laughs> and a friend of mine was driving me back to London, off to drive me back to London. And he woke me up at, I don't know, nine o'clock in the morning. And I hadn't packed. And he's, thank God, still a friend. Um, and he drove me back and he put the seat the passenger seat horizontal and said, for fuck's for God's sake, just sleep. All right. Yeah. Is your terrible state mm. that evening. I had to do the interview. Right. And I think it was my first profile. Yeah, it was. I, think. I probably wasn't feeling <laughs> particularly good, but, uh, but I, I think I, 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 it didn't really worry me in, in the sense that I thought, well, that's, that's the role I, I've been, you know, at that point, as I say, I was just started at the RSC, so I was doing things, I think, like I was doing sort of comedic roles. I might have gone into the serious ones, but I was doing the comedic roles and I was doing the grotesques, and I was perfectly happy. You know? Right. Um, and, you know, I was with Rafe Fiennes, who was the sort of heroic leading man of, that, of our seasons. So that was his job, and my job was equally interesting, but just not... not um, using my look, well, not using my good looks, you know. Um, <laughs> so I, I think probably I was just, I assumed that's what I'd do. Mm. When you eventually joined the RSC, do you, I'm not sure how different it is now, but um, when you joined the RSC, you joined the company, and do you get cast within that company when the show has come up for that season? How yeah. does it work? I think it was, it was a, a funny middle period between, there was the great period of when you know major major actors would come out like Judy Dench and Patrick Stewart and Ben Kingsley and Ian Holm and all all the, the big boys and girls from that period and you could sort of you could make you could make a name for yourself doing the great Shakespearean parts and um 
And then now I don't think it's as easy. I, mean, I think you could do a whole load of great Shakespearean parts that nobody would necessarily think you were high profile at all. Um, I think I was in a sort of middle period, which is that you joined the company and then I, mean, I was with them for eight years on and off, which is quite a long time in your 20s and 30s. And uh, I was very happy because, you know, every year another part would come up that was fascinating, like Richard III, for instance. You know, you, you can't turn down Richard III. It's just it's one of those parts you just have to do if you're asked to do it. And um, uh, and also it's where I met Sam, of course, Mendes. So, yeah. Uh, uh, there was a sort of whole host of reasons for staying there. And they, they were very they were very kind to me. I mean, they, they gave me parts over that eight years that got progressively more and more interesting and complicated. So um, I stayed and I think, I, and again, there was no career plan. It was just, that's what you did. But I wasn't sort of looking for a film career or anything. Right, right. So <clears throat> obviously you progress at the RSC to play bigger roles. Um, when you eventually get to a position when you're playing, uh, for example, Richard III, and um, I think handling classic texts, I think, it, it seems so familiar to us because so many actors have said those lines previously, like uh, Olivier, Gilgood, and uh, Anthony Shea. Uh, when you played Richard III, how do you approach the development of your Richard? Do you totally disregard and don't even consider what's come before, or do you flirt with having a little look? It's funny you should mention that particular part because uh, I was reading a Sunday newspaper just before um, we opened, and... Um, they had an article about Richard III's of the past. Uh, and they were saying this, it's new Richard III in Stratford, you know, Simon Russell Beale. Um, let's look at Olivier. Oh, I think Ian McKellen was doing it at the time, the National. Uh, Sher had just recently done his famous one, uh, Ian Home. Anyway, they went through them all. And I was reading this article. And I got this enormous pain in my stomach. And I, and I went and had a bath to try and sort of calm down a bit. And I think, I think it was the first time that it had ever occurred to me that doing these very great parts requires you to at least acknowledge the history of them. Right. Up until then, you see, the parts, I, hadn't, I mean, they were marvellous parts, but I, I, I don't suppose they were sort of ones that, of course, they had a history, but I was unaware of it. And I, and I just blithely just, you know, societies and, Toilets of Cresta has a huge history of great performances, but I, but I wasn't aware of it particularly. That was so. Richard III was the first time I thought, "Oh God, oh God, they're going to compare me to Olivia, Olivia mm, you know." Mm. And um, uh, and since then, of course, I've been I've been actually acutely aware of it. Um, but I didn't. I wasn't tempted to go and have sneak looks. I have to say. Um, I, well, it was too late for Richard III anyway, because we'd opened it, we were in preview, but um, to change anything. But I, I don't think I've ever, I've ever gone and looked at previous performances, because I think that would just mess me up. Uh, but there have been, John Gielgud died on the first day of rehearsals for Hamlet. And I always remember thinking, God, that's, that's just weird, mm, mm. you know. Um, but I don't think I've ever, ever I mean, I, I, after I've done a part, I then become interested in the history of the part. But it, and, and also, it was only in the last, I'd say, 10 years have I, have I been interested in the history of theatre, which has become, and especially the history of Shakespeare. So um, that's only been a very recent interest up until then. I just, you know. The other thing with Richard III, I guess, um, and I've obviously read different accounts documenting how different actors have played the part. But a large proportion of those accounts always talk about the appearance of Richard III. How am I going to look? How am I going to walk? And um, I could be wrong, but this seems to be one character where you could work from the outside in. Well, I always, right. used, to, I always used to pretend that I never worked from the outside in, you know, when I say from the outside in. But it's a lie. I'm fooling myself because actually I do it much more than I think I do. Um, and I'm trying to write about various parts now. It's very slow, but it's very, it's, it's, it's coming increasingly clear that I, I very often have a visual 
image. I mean, sort of not even a sort of complete image, but a sort of something that makes me go, uh, um, that sets off a series of ideas in the synapses that you... So with Richard III, I knew that because of the shape I am, mm. I knew that I wanted to look big. And I remember saying to the designer, Tim Hatley, I said, I want to look like a retired American football player. I want all that sort of mass, mass of muscle that's gone to seed. Um, so that was the, that was the, what the flick of an idea that tipped me into how to look. And Richard, of course, is a particular extreme example of that, isn't it? I mean, I don't suppose I thought about how Hamlet looked really, um, or Lear, but, um, but I definitely did with Richard. Um, and then it sort of develops into a, into a, a dialogue with the designer, um, which I have to say probably is that whole thing of dialogues with designers, I think probably is a very 30 years old that. I think before that you were just told what to wear. Right, okay. But um, They didn't quite I mean, ask you what you thought. No, they would just say, this is what you're wearing. I don't think so as much anyway. Mm, Perhaps mm. they did with the leading actors, but uh, certainly with playing lesser parts, you just... But I had long, long discussions with Tim about about how he should look and what you know what his hair should be. I've got to think about how my hair is um, and facial hair for, for everybody. I will say for King Lear, when I saw you do King Lear, I saw you in a few things previous to that, Private on Parade, which I loved, um, Hot House. But shaving your head for Lear gave you such a... I don't know. Uh, it was a look I'd never seen you adopt before. And I, I don't know, I hesitate to say thuggish, but you did have a sort of, uh, you looked brutal. Yes, it is a thuggish look, yes. I've done, it, I've done it a few times. I've got three options with my hair. Right. Shave it off and become a thug. Right. <laughs> this, sort of, this sort of look, which is sort of neutral. Hmm. And then grow it a bit longer and curl it. <laughs> As, as far as I can see, that's that's my three options, right. and I've done the curling option quite a few times actually. Um, but the 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 thug look, uh, and it well, what it does to me is changes my way of standing. Um, uh, my head, my head immediately comes forward. Yeah, you you, you there was a, a much more sunkenness yeah. in the upper chest. Right. I thought, yeah, mm. uh, that's partly to do with Leah's age, but also and Richard's back mm. issues. Mm. But yeah, the thug look. It changes my my uh, demeanour. Yeah. Mm, mm. So that's probably why I do it. I wanted to throw a quote to you, which I which I found was that Terry Hans supposedly said to you <laughs> that you always play parts in the style of the part the you'd like to play you next. Want to do next. <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant comment, and um, he made it in. He, there was a, used to be an annual lecture that the I don't know whether they still do it, but the artistic director of the RSC used to give to a sort of Shakespeare annual gathering in Stratford, and he did his speech, and I remember just listening to it, and he talked about me. Yes, I always pay parts to the style of the one I want to do next. Um, Terry was incredibly witty, as you know. And um, can I also say, incredibly kind to me, and he had a reputation for being pretty fearsome, as you know, mm. And uh, but he was incredibly kind to me, and he... He was the one who changed my career, and um, but he, yes, I don't quite know what he meant, <laughs> meant by that. But it's a very funny idea, and I suppose, I suppose the RSC did did encourage me to think about what the next stage would be. I right. suppose, right. and when he offered me, it was Constantine and the Seagull, and it was the first time anybody had ever said to me, "I think you're." you're potentially a serious place. You can play serious parts. You know, I've done the restoration of Fops and I've done, uh, I'd done Richard the third by then might've done, but of course Richard third is a sort of grotesque really. Um, but nobody had ever said, we just want you to appear looking like you and, uh, and you will be required to, you know, break our hearts. And that's what Terry did. Um, so I'm not quite sure what he was he was saying, but then of course once you do Constantine, then things like Hamlet come up right. in your head mm. because you suddenly think, ah, oh, right, perhaps they're not so worried about 
the fact that I don't look like a romantic lead and I could think about things like Hamlet. So maybe that's what he thought. I can't remember the parts I was doing when he made that remark, otherwise I'd be more precise. (laughs) (laughs) You've said that Terry Hans had a huge impact on your career in terms of you playing bigger roles. And obviously... Famously, you've had a long-standing relationship with Sam Mendes, and there's a book written about it, Catching the Light, um, <clears throat> which I've read many times. Um, and well, Terry, Terry put Sam and me together. Right. When Terry died, um, Sam phoned up, and he was very upset, and, and the memories were very upsetting. Um, and because Terry... I mean, the influence that man had when you actually think about what he did and the people he got together and the actors he got together um, and the directors at Liverpool and in Stratford is just astonishing mm. and Clurid. Mm. Just astonishing. Um, and Sam, on this conversation when we're talking about Terry, and he said, you know, Terry put us together. I had a meeting and uh, with the directors and Terry said, I really think you should use Simon because I think you'd enjoy his... his company and that was when Sam was doing Troyes and Cressida so you know Sam would acknowledge that Terry was the one who put us together and indeed as you know it's been an incredibly fruitful relationship um, and that cast of Troyes and Cressida this again is Terry as well as Sam was I mean look back at it now and you think you know, Kieran Hines, Patterson Joseph, Sally Dexter, Amanda Roof, Ray mm. Fines <clears throat> all in the same company yeah mm. And that's Terry. Mm. Astonishing. Um, Sam. That, let's, let's talk about Sam, because he, he, um, he phoned up my parents' house. Um, my parents were living in the quarters in Tidworth. And mum said, oh, there's a phone call for you in the study. And this young whippersnapper said, hello, I'm Sam Mendes. Would you like to do societies in Troyes and Cressida? I thought, oh, no, really? Oh, God. <laughs> you know, Shakespeare clowns mm. don't just keep me Shakespeare clowns. Yeah. I really can't do them. Um, it's a special skill. But I thought he's so hot at the moment. This is me being careeristic. Mm. Yeah, well, he's so hot. I mean, you know, everyone's talking about it. I have to do it. I better say yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> and, of course, it was an absolute joy. And also as it happens, a really funny part, genuinely funny Shakespeare clown. But uh, uh, I, I, there was a moment when I thought, oh, I did the like we bothered. <laughs> More from Simon in a moment. Sit down, relax, and listen to Brewing Actors Podcast with a cup of Cold Town Coffee. Cold Town Coffee is roasted on-site at our HQ and Roastery in Ammonford, South Wales. Our coffee is sustainable and ethically sourced, and we believe the fairer the deal between producer and farmer, the higher the quality and taste of the coffee in your cup. Use the code BREWINGACTERS10 to receive 10% off your orders at coldtowncoffee.co.uk. I'm Adam Robert Lewis, and you're listening to Brewing Actors Podcast. I continue my conversation with Simon Russell Beale. You've worked with Sam Mendes many times, and um, I wanted to find out what are the advantages of working with the director uh, many times, and also what can be the disadvantages of of that um well it's been fascinating because you know i have seen him change um i've seen him our first projects were Troilus and which the third and they were quite i think looking back on them they felt like young men's plays um you know they were harsh and savage and cynical and uh, quite a lot of machismo, not not from Sam, but in the plays. So they were, the choices were fairly sort of brutal. He he always had an amazing ability to pare down and not and not display his his wares as a director. Do you know what I mean? But the Troilus was a, an incredible uh, achievement on his part because he he produced something that was so elegant. 
and so beautiful and so it's a very difficult play um it didn't sort of push too hard it was just and he was what 20 something i mean he was and then richard was again the same thing it didn't push too hard and he he gradually devised a, a, a way of working, at least in the plays I did with him, which were all Shakespeare or Chekhov, of basically using an empty room. It sounds so basic, but it was more complicated than that. He used, he used to use an empty room and gradually got this idea of getting that to sort of just all sit around and they would all be there all the time for the first period of the rehearsals. And then you just throw in, throw people into the middle of the circle, as it were. And just just do what you felt like with the scene until and what he would do, and this is a, another great skill which also Nick Heitner shares. He has a retentive memory for tiny little things that he likes, which will just clock away. So two weeks later, he says, "Do you remember in the first week when you went on and you did that?" Can you try that again? right? So he would build it up through that, uh, and the set, the designer would. On most plays I've done with him, the designer would be asked to provide an empty box, and then and then we would fill it up with stuff. Um, the most extreme example, fun enough, is Lehman trilogy, the latest play I've done, which is where he used a completely different technique because he he realised that the play itself, and I had to use a different technique as so well. The play itself was a very different beast from the ones we've done before, but we still had an empty room. That was very much an empty space, and um, I thought it was incredible how you built these different scenes using these boxes. Although I must admit, I know they probably reinforced, but um, every time you stood on the boxes, my heart just and leapt. Box, yeah. they're, they're reinforced. Um, the, uh, uh, no, that's that's that was a very interesting process because he started with as Devlin had provided this beautiful spinning cube, as you know. Uh, an amazing cyclorama at the back, uh, but in the within the cube, we just had the modern office. And so, what he did at the very beginning was fill it. Actually, almost the opposite of what I'm saying. As he normally does, he filled it with sort of water coolers and coffee makers and a whiteboard and pens, and then gradually stripped it all away. Actually, again, this is a very sand thing. Strip, strip away, away, away. Just get rid of it. Um, and uh, we ended up with just boxes and those marker mm, pens, mm. as you remember. Uh, I remember in Troilus, he did a, he spent, um, he got the guys, the warriors, to come in every morning for weeks to do what he wanted as an opening sequence, which was an amazing, um, I don't know whether you've ever seen those um, American colour regiments that do this spin yeah, their guns no. Oh, it's an amazing sign. I can't remember who does it. Um, some American Army Corps or Marine Corps. And they sort of, they do this amazing thing where they sort of push guns up and they, they swap over and catch them and they spin in the air. It's like a dance routine. Anyway, he wanted the same sort of thing with sticks. Um, so all the Greek warriors and all the Trojan warriors would be doing this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> every morning and they got very skillful and they worked, they worked very hard at it. And I think in the last week, Sam went, nah, cut it. Yeah. Cause he suddenly said, we can't beat Shakespeare's way of starting this play, which is basically a young woman, an older man sitting on stage talking, which is Crested and Pandras. And, uh, I'm, I'm messing around with it to no particular effect. So, yeah, strip away, strip away, strip away. Are there any disadvantages to working with the director more than once, if any? Yes, and I think I think the, the difficult. Well, the advantages are uh, a uh, a way of communicating with each other. Really, doesn't need nothing needs to be said at some point. So we just go. I know exactly what you mean. I know what you want from me, and um, and he knows me well enough now to. I think he described me once as saying, just occasionally you give Simon an idea and he'll straw it away like a squirrel. Right. And it'll come back later. And he knows how to plant those little ideas. Um, and also, you know, I think I, I might do the opposite back to him occasionally. I'll just go, no, I, I think that's, that's um, not such a good idea as this idea. Um, I, think, I think the Lehman trilogy was a very good thing for us because it challenged our process. And I think there are... There are dangers of going, oh, yeah, yeah I know. this is what mm, you do. Mm. 
um, uh, and I was aware of that. I think in with me, not with him, but with me in the Bridge Project and Leah to, to a certain extent, of saying oh, I'm I'm doing the same. I'm using the same process. It's part of the reason why I did Richard the Second with Joe Hill Gibbons. I wanted somebody to come and look at Shakespeare with me that was a sort of sort of see how somebody else approached mm, it. Really. Mm, mm. The um, the company dynamic uh, is interesting, I guess. If if you and and Sam Mendes are in a room on the first day of rehearsal, there must be intimidation from the other actors, relatively who, who haven't um, done a yeah, great I think, deal of work. Yeah, I think unquestionably, and uh, you, you try your best not to become exclusive. That would be awful. But yeah, no, I'm, I've been told that it can be a little bit sort of. Oh God, mm. those two. Are <laughs> um, uh, the first time I worked with Nick, interestingly enough, who I absolutely love, which is Nick Heitner for uh, anybody who doesn't know. Yeah, um, we did the Alchemist together, and we'd known each other for about twenty-five years. Right, <laughs> I'd gone to. You hadn't worked with him together. at the RS because he worked at the RSC. No, right? he worked at the RSC at the same time as me and Sam, um, and. Uh, but we just happened to work together. And I assumed actually he thought I was rubbish. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we used to get to the theatre together and, and whatever. And then finally he said, when he took over the nursery, he said, I used to be the alchemist. And I was very aware that, and I was with Alex Jennings and Leslie Manvers, the three central characters. Um, Leslie, I don't think knew Nick particularly well at that stage, but Alex knew him very well. And yes, it's it's a fairly daunting thing to 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 watch is two people who know each other very very well i mean they were great they you know opened their arms but it is i'm i'm well aware that with me and sam it can become a bit bit daunting yeah. i wanted to talk about the bridge project and how that was developed i think correct me if i'm wrong but the cherry orchard and another play which i can't remember now were the first projects to go on this transatlantic tour to bam and um, was that the first time you went to America to perform? Um, I'd done, uh, my first visit was with Sam, with Othello, with David Harewood, and I was playing Iyanya, and Claire Skinner and Maureen Beattie. Uh, Marvellous production, a very unusual Sam production in the sense that it was set in, set in a specific period. First time I ever did something was set in a, I think it's because Othello is peculiarly domestic play and he wanted a domestic setting it's a very unpleasant play actually I think um, so we'd done that and then I did Hamlet um, at the last minute we took Hamlet to BAM and then and then the the bridge project came out of when Sam left the Donmar the last two shows he did there were Twelfth Night and Uncle Vanya and we did them as a double bill and that went to BAM and uh there were marvellous productions. And uh, it was then that he had this idea of, of, I remember it was in a cafe in Brooklyn. He said, I've got this idea of mixing American and English actors together. Um, uh, and let's do, and I'd like to do a check off Shakespeare, double bill again. So we were talking about, you know, which Shakespeare could fit which, Chekhov, and it was Winter's Tale, actually. Right, the Winter's Tale, with, yeah. With, yeah. Uh, um, Cherry Orchard. Uh, and it was uh, an interesting idea. The funny thing about the Bridge Project is that in the end, although there are, there are differences of, of re- rehearsal procedure between the two countries, in the end, of course, it's exactly the same. It is. That's something I wanted to ask, actually. Everyone assumes that we are all steeped in the tradition of Shakespeare. And I guess that's probably true to a certain extent, but maybe less so in America. Obviously, they have Shakespeare in the park, but there doesn't seem to be that much of a tradition there. And um, I was just wondering, does it fuse well together? And how do you navigate through the different methods um, from the American and British approach to acting? I think there was... It's a very silly thing about accents, isn't it? I mean, I think in in terms of the process of working, that wasn't a problem. And... um, uh, I think a lot of the cliches we have about each other's acting are not necessarily true. I mean, I think every single English actor is steeped in Shakespeare, really. I mean, 
but you're right in that our culture the is culture, steeped yeah. in it. Mm. And the American, the American theatre culture is also steeped in it. You know? And then, and then the thing about me- method and and the idea of using that technique, uh, we use it, although we don't admit it quite as as open. Um, so I, I think I think that all those techniques, in fact, melded together. What in the end was a slight, I think, a slight problem was literally creating creating a single world when everybody speaks quite obviously from different parts of, of the globe. Um, but perhaps it wasn't a problem. I mean, perhaps that was my problem rather than the audience's problem. Uh, I mean, in, in The Winter's Tale, for instance, it was rather, we were divided into two because it's, it's Bohemia and Sicily. The two worlds were actually mostly the two sets of actors, and I thought that worked very well. But The only production I've seen, I think, which is, which was part of the Bridge Project, um, and I've obviously seen the documentary since, was a production at the Old Vic, which was the last production to go to BAM, I think, which was Richard the Third. Richard the Third, yeah. I mean, I, I, by that stage, I'd long gone, and um, so I didn't, I wasn't involved either the second or the third. Um, In terms of different directors' approach to verse speaking or how, uh, you know, Shakespeare should be spoken, I've been researching it a bit and trying to polish up on my own understanding of the different approaches. And uh, in one article I read, Peter Gill famously used to get the actor to write out the speech without any punctuation uh, so that, you know, nothing, so nothing could affect your natural rhythm with a line. And uh, obviously, if you take Peter Hall's approach, it's very, you know, he's very much a fundamentalist in terms of the iambic pentameter and would, you know, pick you up on end stopping. And when you approach a role, do you have a process and and which camp are you in? I'm about halfway. Right. Um, I did, I did, um, I'm, I'm more Puritan than I admit. Um, in the, fun enough, I'm editing King Lear at the moment for Arden performance edition it's actually fascinating because it's a whole different discipline and of course a lot of it is to do because it's Arden for performance it's lots of it's to do with the rhythm the speaking um I will mark up every single word right in terms of dress so um when I did the Tempest was that the last Shakespeare I did yeah I did the whole thing uh really sort of boring, dogged work, but every single line and sort out, if there are problematic lines, sort out what you will do, this before you learn it, what you will do in terms of the rhythmic thing. Learn it with those rhythms um, and then forget about it. Because I think, so that's why I go on to the Peter Gill thing. And I, did, I, did, I did have, a, there was an actor I was working with um, on a film recently and he was, Wanting, he said, "Can you come and help me with some Hamlet?" And he'd written out the whole thing, funny enough, without the verse lines, just as a sort of single, which was very useful for him to get the thoughts in his head. Mm. And I said, "Now, once you've got that, then go back to the verse, because if you, if you just, if you learn it rhythmically, um, it gives you. I can't quite explain it, but it gives you a sort of physical security." When you speak, it gives you uh, like a so safety do, blanket to fall back on. Yes, and you just, so a line will never sort of slip away. Right, there will always be always be a sense in which it has that heartbeat all the way through. And but but don't become so obsessed with it that you're not willing to. I mean, I break I break it up. I've been criticised for this, but I break it up terribly. I mean, I I leave big pauses <laughs> for which I've been criticised. Um, in the middle of lines, it, the you know I don't end stop like Peter Hall liked you know, that very yeah. strict end stopping. Mm. Um, because my having done all that, and I say forget about it. It seems to be our principal job is that is to make it as comprehensible as possible at first hearing, basically. And I've said that many times, but I you know they're unlikely to come and see you again, an audience they might, but. Um, so if it requires you to not play the, the the rhythm according to the strict rules, then so be it. This is uh, this is 
a personal question for me, which is a bit naughty, but I but I wanted to get your take on this. I don't normally do this, but um, I always struggle with, and you've practically answered the question, but but I always struggle if I have a strong sense of the line and how I want to deliver the line. What happens if that totally goes against the iambic pentameter? What what do I do then? Well, it depends on the situation, but if if of course it depends on what what verse you're talking about because if you're doing Marlowe for instance he's almost entirely badum 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 so the, the the question doesn't really come up um in fact he very rarely goes across the end of the line as well so in fact you could do the the end stopping as well if you wanted to um which at the end stopping by that i mean just to that little tiny little Bo- pause mm. um was this the face that launched a thousand ships no, it just goes on and on and on. That's the mighty line. It's the, it's the great thumping rhythm that he has and the power that Marlowe has. With Shakespeare, it all changes when he gets, um, there's a, his middle period, stuff like Measure for Measure, goes all over the place. And then, of course, his last stuff is wild in terms of strict rhythm. And if I were to, as a general rule, <laughs> I would say go for the sense, but yeah, this is a tricky one, isn't it? Because I, I think you, you have to keep the, the heartbeat. I think once you, once you get rid of the heartbeat, then you, you do get into trouble. Um, only because you feel unsafe. Mm, mm. Um, so you keep the heartbeat, but if you, if you feel it, um, as I say, it depends on the, on the line, but if you feel that you want to break in the middle or, you know, go over the end or, you know, I did things you're not supposed to do. Don't worry. The other thing is, when people talk about performances, they reference the voice beautiful uh, as, a, as a negative. And I kind of disagree with this, I think. But everyone felt Burton spoke it beautifully, but whether there was any meaning or acting is up for debate, and people have different views on it. And I guess Gilgood was a beautiful verse speaker, and um, probably Paul Schofield was a blend of the two. And I was just wondering, do you get seduced by if it sounds nice? Um, the well, let's do well. Gilgood first. If you listen to Gilgood do Ham, it's incredibly quick. Mm. That's the first thing you notice about Gilgood's Hamlet. It, well, the one recording I've heard, and he did a few times, I know, but um, I, I mean, I love Richard Burton's voice, and I could listen to it for hours. And and Schofield's um, the. Uh, I, I don't have a voice beautiful. So I don't sit there ever thinking, um, I'm making a beautiful sound here. Uh, so I don't think, luckily, I, I don't think that applies to me, <laughs> he says. I, there are two things to say um, uh, about that, though, is that weirdly, in Shakespeare, I'm, I'm rather obsessed with this at the moment, very often the most beautiful speeches are. are in the, uh, saying the most terrible things. So uh, when I did um, Prospero, our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, are vanished into air, into thin, uh, melted into air. Great speech. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. I've done it at a hundred funerals. Right. Where at the funeral, you do a sort of version which is about as near to voice beautiful as I can get. The poised, soft radio mm-hmm. voice. In situation, that speech is done in a fury. In fact, it ends with, uh, my, poor, my old brain is troubled. He's in a fury. He's doing it to, uh, with his daughter present, but he's addressing her fiancé. <laughs> and he's saying, effectively, life's shit. And completely pointless and has no value. Mm. And so you see, they're thinking, God, this amazing, uh, this is an amazing piece of writing, spinning this spell. But it's like the worst father of the bride speech you can imagine. It's like saying, <laughs> mm. you two are just about to get married, but I can tell you that life is completely pointless. The same thing applies to Lear when he, he talks to Cordelia about we two shall sing like birds in the cage when they're captured, he and his daughter, and they're 
and he's saying, don't worry about it because we'll spend the rest of our life in prison and just keep each other company and laugh at everybody outside. They're thinking, are you completely mad? This is a young woman you're talking to. This is your newly married daughter. It's mm. not, she's not going to say, that's a really good idea, Dad. Let's go to prison. <laughs> no. so, but occasionally, I just think the, the beautiful verse cuts. I think that's what makes it exciting, cuts against the actual situation. And I, that I find absolutely thrilling. Um, the second thing I have to say about that is the, the best single piece of verse speaking, for what it's worth, was at a recital at the Globe Theatre which I've not performed at, but I did this recital. And Vanessa Redgrave did a speech uh, from King John about the death of her child, her son. And I have no idea whether she observed the verse. I've no idea. She might have been throwing it all over the place. But frankly, her unbelievable commitment to the idea of a mother's grief was breathtaking. Mm. Breathtaking. And she probably did do it correctly. I don't know. But I mean, I literally don't care. I don't know. I mean, for me, that was, that was just amazing to see this woman access this terrible distress. Weirdly, and I'm going to name drop here, but Ethan Hawke, who I was in Winterstale with, years later, said the same thing. We were talking about great moments of Shakespeare acting. And I remember I said, oh, well, mine is. And he said, you're going to say Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> so I wasn't alone. Right. I mean, it was, it was, that's just astonishing. And that wasn't voice beautiful. That was, that was emotional. When it comes to your performances, do you, do you read reviews? I've never asked this question before, but it's always something that has interested me. Do you read them? Um, I wish I had said I didn't. And I'm getting better at not now. And I'm quite ruthless. I only read the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> so does somebody give you a heads up and say, Simon, read the Telegraph? <laughs> well, well fun, <clears throat> fun enough, I... I used to read them and then I did Hamlet and my mother had just died as you probably have read <clears throat> and that whole opening of that show and she knew I was going to do it but she didn't manage to survive to see it and um, it, but the whole thing about Hamlet became more important than me doing the play really I mean it became about it was my gift to her really I mean it was it was yeah, it was my gift to her. And so I said to myself, and I actually genuinely meant it, I said, um, I really am not going to read them. So I said to the cast, you know, by the way, I don't read the reviews, so it's a bit of a lie. But I, I, and I genuinely did, I stuck to it. And then Sarah Kessman, marvellous actress who was playing Gertrude, phoned me up the day after and said, I think you should look at the stand. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought, okay. <laughs> so it was lovely. It was a lovely review. And then I thought, well, actually, that's what I'm going to do in the future. So, somebody's bound to tell me. You've got to go to find yeah, out. Yeah. And you're bound to find out about bad ones as well as good ones, in which case I'll just read the good ones. Because, you know, we do need to cling on to our self confidence, really. And um, uh, if, if, if that does it, well, then fine. When you get into a rehearsal room, um, like King Lear, for example, at the National. Obviously, I have no experience of Shakespeare at all. So, But there are different folios and different editions, and I'm not sure how it works or which version you work from, but is it the director who decides which folio you will use or which edition will be, uh, will be performed? Because it seems they release... Not all productions, but some productions release the text that they've used. I went to see Jamie Lloyd's production of Richard III, this was years ago, at the Trafalgar Transformed, and they released a new version, which I bought. Um, I haven't compared it to the other versions. I've also got the RSC editions, which I like, uh, and obviously there's Arden. But what version do you reference the most? Um, my my iPad is propped up against the list. Um, <clears throat> funny you mention this, because this is a subject I'm absolutely besotted with at the moment, and I want to do a TV series about it, because I think um, it's, it's much more fascinating than it sounds. <laughs> it's for editing. Right. Um, and in fact, actually, we've got a plan for a, a series, because it's a whole history of, of um, every edition you get as you well you know, <clears throat> will most likely be a mix of 
early authoritative editions, either the folio or earlier quarters. Um, and um, usually in the rehearsal room, uh, you will get a, a typed copy. This is that has worked with me, which has been developed by the director usually. So the director has probably gone through the various options. So if you read the Arden, which is the most comprehensive edition, I think, um, in, in England, in Britain, um, then you will get all the options that you can possibly use. So at the moment, if I'm editing Lear, as I am at the moment, I'll be going through, because it's an edition for performance, I, every line I give, well, you could say this if you wanted to. You'd have authorities there. Uh, and the, the usually what happens is the editions that people use are the 1623 folio, as, or as I say, earlier uh, quarto editions. So they're, they're very authoritative in the sense that they're basically Shakespeare's lifetime. So, but I find it absolutely fascinating that you can pick and choose. And one of the most successful processes that I had on the rehearsal floor was when we did Hamlet, and actually uh, John Kerr was directing, and he didn't want Fortinbras. He wants to cut Fortinbras. But we were given um, a whole load of different versions on the table. We spent two weeks cutting it as a cast so that every single person had knew why certain lines had been cut. They knew the only thing we obviously couldn't really about, there was no Fortinbras mm. cast. Is that, so we knew that was is that go. normal but to sit down and cut it together? No. Not, no. Not, not, no. Um, and actually, well, it was a very, very, um, it took a long time and, and it felt like sometimes it would have a waste of our time in the sense that we were, we should be up on our feet. Um, but in fact, it was extremely valuable because everybody knew, uh, were, were, had agreed to their own cuts for a start. But also everyone knew why that particular word had been chosen as opposed to that particular. And, uh, and it's fascinating. I mean, the, the differences in Lear, um, at the end of Lear are really fundamental between the two versions that we use, the quarter and folio. So, you know, you can go, and as famously as we know, there are three early versions of Hamlet, all of them made different. So um, it's always worth it, always worth as an actor, I think, having a knowledge that whatever what, the thing you've been given, mm, what's, what? there, are, <clears throat> there are other options, although most directors, would, having done all the work themselves, would probably object if you said, Hang on a minute. I like that line, but um, it's been cut. Uh, but I find the whole whole thing completely fascinating um, because it's to do with it's to do with our history. It's to do with the way we see, you know, the, the development of Shakespeare as a national poet, then as an international global poet, and it, it, it does affect the way we, even the way we um, punctuate and. Um, because so. I would, uh, I'm not to go back to Titus, but it's only because <laughs> I've read it so many yeah, times. <laughs> we are going back to Titus. <laughs> I'd like to Titus. Would you? I, would you I, I was going to ask that question. Have you ever been well, you, offered? You say you're too, you're too old. Do you think? Actually, no, I suppose, no, I wouldn't. Sixties, right? yeah. yeah. Um, have you ever been asked to play Titus and turned it down? No. no. We've talked about successful Shakespeare performances, but um, what happens if you get into a rehearsal room and you think this is really badly conceived? Is it, you know, is it any different to being in, you know, a badly conceived play? Long pause, I've just done, isn't it? <laughs> um, because I actually think I've been very lucky with Shakespeare. I've done productions which I've not been comfortable in or unhappy unhappy in your own performance you mean yeah yeah but also i don't think necessarily they were making productions either um, but actually the shakespeare's for the most part have been extremely enjoyable and well done i've been lucky there um and i don't suppose if you're miserable in a shakespeare play it feels any different from being miserable in another play and there's there is nothing worse. I mean, there's nothing worse. There's a line in The Seagull, which every actor knows when Nina comes up at the end, she says, you don't know what it's like when you know you're acting badly. <laughs> and every time, Amanda, the greatest Nina I've ever seen, every night, you don't know what it's like when you know you're acting badly. And every actor I know just goes, oh my God. It's a peculiarly 
humiliating and vulnerable position to be in, isn't it? Um, and I don't suppose it's any different for Shakespeare's it as well. Mm. I wanted to briefly talk about movies and moving into screen acting uh, and what that was like for you. Obviously, you've been in Penny Dreadful and recently Death of Stalin. And um, a lot of actors I've spoken to have said that they their earliest influences were um, from going to the movies. Um, Brian Cox has said he, you know, sat watching Spencer Tracy, James Dean and Bogart and had a hankering to go to Hollywood. And obviously your early experiences were steeped in Shakespeare. And um, do you enjoy the process of working between the two mediums now? Uh, Because you have said that your screen career is very much in its embryotic stage. And are you more focused now on doing on doing that? Well, <clears throat> given the situation at the moment, I'm going to have to try and do some film, aren't I? But um, the, yes, no, I'd love to do more film. It, it, it's my background in theatre and in film and in TV and all that is just odd because I grew up abroad and I didn't see half the things. I never saw Monty Python. I never saw any of that stuff. And so people of my age who refer to things and you think in the rehearsal room for something, I have no idea what you're, well, I know what you're talking about, but I mean, I'm, I'm, it's not part of my, same with pop music. That's why my, my Desert Island Distros, which you mentioned before we started, was all classical music. Because I, I, I my family, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a, compulsory it's just it never happened dad was a classical musician and that's what we listened to and we didn't see any of the big tv shows we didn't see uh, at school you weren't allowed to watch television very much and um and films i mean i don't think i was i mean this wasn't part Mm, of my childhood mm, mm. i'm not quite sure i mean going back to the very beginning of our talk you know it's that teacher who was the person who got me interested in theater (laughs) 